Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8, and we will continue in the life of David uh, where we have been and hope, Lord willing, will be for a few more months. You know, Jeff had mentioned something very, very true. Freedom is not free. Freedom is very, very expensive, very costly. And uh, freedom that is not diligently prayed for and protected is soon lost. So this is a good day. Do you remember that? A woman named Mamie Adams always went to a branch post office in her town because the postal employees there were friendly and kind. She went there to buy stamps just before Christmas one year and the lines were particularly long. Someone pointed out to her that there was no need to wait in line because there was a stamp machine in the lobby. I know, said Mamie, but the stamp machine won't ask me about my arthritis. (laughs) So true. Today we're going to continue our study in 2 Samuel. We'll be looking at King David, and we're looking at King David today from two contrasting point of views. In chapter 8, where we're going to spend some time to start with, we're going to see the conquests of David, and in chapter 9, we're going to see the compassion of David. In chapter 8, we see the courage of David in warfare, and in chapter 9, We see his kindness in peacetime. In 2 Samuel 8, we see how he gives God the credit for his military victories. And in chapter 9, he cares for a helpless man because God had cared for him. In chapter 8, he kills those who would attack Israel. And in chapter 9, he shows kindness to the grandson of a man who spent 10 years trying to kill him. So David is both tough and tender. He's both a fighter and a lover. Chapter 8 is going to be looking at the conquests of David, and Rob has a couple of maps he's going to show you that a record of really of David's victories over neighboring nations. The extent of David's kingdom was fairly large. What we want to look at is the text indicates that David had military victories in literally every direction. 2 Samuel 8 is a record of unbroken, uninterrupted conquests. He defeated the Philistines to the west. He defeated the Moabites in the southeast. It says he defeated Hadadezer, which the king of Zobah, that's located in north, up in Aram, which is modern-day Lebanon. That's where that is today. It also says he defeated the Arameans of Damascus, which is in modern-day Syria. Damascus is one of the longest inhabited, longest continuously inhabited cities Uh, And the world, along with Jericho, some 8,000 years worth of human habitation have been found there. He also, um, when he defeated Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, another king named Toy, from Hamath, H-A-M-A-T-H, that's also in the north. He was an enemy of Hadadezer, and it says when uh, David defeated him, Toy sent a peace envoy and brought tribute. That's a fancy way of saying tax. It's a fancy way of saying, if I pay you tribute, you won't invade my country. That happened fairly regularly, and in chapter 8, that happens at least on two or three occasions. If you want a quick summary look of David's victories in 2 Samuel 8, go to verse 12 in your Bible. 2 Samuel 8, verse 12, it says, From Aram to the north, and Moab, the sons of Ammon, that's to the east, the Philistines to the west, and Amalek, that's to the south, from the spoil of Hadadezer to the north, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, he put garrisons in verse 14 in Edom, that's to the southeast. In all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants of David. So this chapter is a summary of unbroken, unbridled, experiencing military success wherever David goes, north, south, east, and west. And it seems as though at this point in his life he is never defeated. And we look at that and say, that's remarkable. I would love to have a period in my life where every battle I faced, I never was defeated. 
Well, well, next week we'll take a look at he was defeated, not by military conquest, but by his own sin nature. And you ask, well, how can he be non-defeated, multiple enemies over multiple months? How does that occur? Chapter 8, verse 14 gives us the answer. Actually, twice. Once in verse 6 and once in verse 14. So if you look at 2 Samuel 8, verse 6, there's a little phrase in the middle of verse 6 and a little phrase in a little verse 14, and they're identical. And it says, And the Lord helped David wherever he went. Interesting phrase. Here's the principle. God is our strength in the battles of life. So trust him before the battle, obey him in the battle, and praise him after the battle. You'll notice that there is no way of avoiding the battles of life, right? If you don't go looking for them, they will look for you and they will find you. So the principle is God is our strength in the battles of life. I probably should have said the inevitable battles of life. So the, re the, the reason David was successful over and over in every battle he fought, it was the blessing of the Lord that gave David the victory. Remember, God had a purpose behind this sustained victory track record. God's purpose is for David to subdue Israel's enemies that live on the land that God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Way back in Genesis 12, God had promised Abraham the land of Canaan and his descendants. This territory that David was conquering was part of the land grant, the irrevocable land grant from now and all eternity that God had given to the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And we're going to find out in this lesson, when God makes a promise, he keeps his word. Now remember, David did not occupy all the land that he had conquered. In the future, Israel will occupy the land grant to the full extent promised in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, and that will happen when Messiah the King returns to earth and establishes the millennial kingdom, and the capital of earth will be in Jerusalem. We know that is coming. Now, you also need to understand that there's really no military reason why David won all these battles, victory after victory. There's no military explanation. Israel did not possess superior weaponry. They certainly didn't possess superior numbers. Many times they were underarmed and certainly undermanned at that point in time. As a matter of fact, they didn't even have horses and chariots. And a lot of their, uh, obviously, enemies did. In that era, a chariot was heavy armor, just like a tank, an armored tank, uh, is today. And God had specifically commanded Israel's kings not, specifically, not to acquire or multiply horses, or else Israel, the nation, would begin to trust in their military armaments and not trust in the Lord. So that was a specific command in Deuteronomy 17. I know there's something cute behind me on this page. I have no idea what it is. Okay, that works. <laughs> you know, when you travel with Rob, there is nothing sacred. Wow. Yeah. That's some horse we're riding there, huh? That horse will live longer than I will. Trust me, right? So God says, why would you trust in horses and chariots? Why would you trust in military armor? Why would you trust in nuclear weaponry, for heaven's sakes, for us today, when you have the God of the universe, the God of glory, the God who controls nature, who operates the law of gravity, who runs the moon and the stars and the rain and the hearts and minds of men. If he is fighting for you, why would you put your faith in stuff? And the answer, it makes no sense at all. God wanted Israel to trust him alone. And that's why he said, don't put your time and your energy into these military armaments. I will take care of you. See, if Israel went against an enemy, underarmed, undermanned, underequipped, and God gave them a supernatural victory, Two things occur. Number one, Israel's faith is strengthened because they've seen God operate on their behalf. And number two, Israel's enemies come to know the God of heaven and earth. And we see that all through this chapter and all through this book, as a matter of fact, when God enables his people to conquer against odds that they should not conquer against, 
the people who are their enemies come to know and encounter the living God and they come to fear the living God and want to know him. See, God's mission was to have Israel represent him on planet Earth, to be his ambassadors. And they needed a homestead to do that, a homeland. And that's why God gave David victory after victory after victory to establish the homeland for the nation of Israel to operate as ambassadors for the king to planet Earth. And the application for us is pretty clear. Most of us don't fight military battles today. However, every one of us face battles, right? Every single day. Everyone faces difficult people. Some of your friends might think you're the difficult person, but anyway. We all face financial pressures, job losses, or just tough jobs, broken relationships with family and friends, and health problems, spiritual warfare, depression, anxiety, fill in the blanks. The list of our battles seems almost endless. And just like Israel, we are tempted to trust in what? What we can see, what we can touch and taste, what we can control. In our world today, people trust in almost anything besides the king of kings. Many people trust in their investments, their insurance policies, their careers, the guns in their safe, uh, the guns they wish they had in their safe, uh, their education, Others trust in the government. Uh. <laughs> Others. Uh, none of you here. Other. I'm talking about those other people. Some people trust in the military. Some people trust in their political, political party. Interesting. Some have faith in their Facebook friends. Some have faith in their connections. Some really trust their physician. Some are really praying their physician knows what they're doing. Some people just trust in their own diet and exercise, their health and strength. The reality is, in this life on earth, sooner or later, everything in your life here will break. Right? It's going to fail. The second law of thermodynamics will not be denied. Amen. The law of entropy is at work. When you get up in the morning and you go, this night's sleep has not helped at all. <laughs> right? And a week from now, it's not going to get better. That's the nature of this life. It's only a matter of when. Our only security, our only source of strength comes from outside the space-time-energy-matter continuum. It's an extraterrestrial source of strength, and it's called Almighty God. As a teenager, David got this. When he faced death, when he fought Goliath, he told Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 14, just before he started swinging the sling, he said in 1 Samuel 17, 47, the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. He got that at 17. I imagine if you were facing a giant, uh, you would need that kind of faith, and you would develop it, uh, or you would face it alone, and David wasn't going to do that. Years later, one of David's descendants, King Jehoshaphat of Judah, he faced a huge invading army that came up from Edom in the southeast, and he prayed to the Lord publicly. All of Judah gathered in Jerusalem for prayer in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. And this is a public prayer from the king and the people. He says, O our God, will you not judge them? That's the invading force. For we are powerless before this great multitude, who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever felt powerless against the situation you're in or the circumstances you face? Have you ever had opposition you didn't know what to do about or situations where there were no human solutions? Have you ever been in the situation where you're just confused as to what the next step is? That's them. And the last phrase says it all. Our eyes are on you. Bring it to the king. Bring it to the king. Generally, our eyes are everywhere else. We're distracted. We want human solutions to human problems. Ultimately, there are no human solutions to human problems. There are only divine solutions. Yes? To human problems. Our eyes should be on him. 
God responds to their prayer and he says through Jehaziel the prophet in verse 15, and Jehaziel said, listen all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Imperative that remember that the battle is not ours, the battle is God's. You all have children, right? Had children. Some of them you're still owning as your children, right? Grandchildren. Think of a father or a mother and your child is in trouble and your child feels that they have to fix it. You as a parent say, Johnny, Jane, you're six years old. I got this thing. I'll take care of the problem. Our Heavenly Father says, son, daughter, I got this thing. Trust me, you don't have to fight this battle. I got it. Scripture tells us that both David and Jehoshaphat experienced great victory, not because of their own strength, but because Almighty God fought on their behalf because they trusted in the Lord and not in human resources. Now, they did trust in the Lord, but they still had to obey and go into battle and face the enemy. What's the last phrase that the prophet said? Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out and face them. You still have to get off your blessed assurance and go out and face the enemies, right? Our trust ultimately is in the Lord, but we still need to do what he says. For example, praying for healing is essential, right? But so is taking your medicine, right? Praying for a job is essential, but so is filling out applications. Praying for a spouse is fine, but it probably won't happen in a monastery or a convent. You know, God does his part and we have our part to do as well. So David trusted in God for the victories here that we see in chapter 8, but he still showed up on the battlefield with the sword in his hand ready to fight. Does that make sense? So God does his part, our trust is in him, but then we have our part to do. Interesting to notice how David responded after God gave him all these victories. Look at 2 Samuel 8, verse 11. Fascinating verse. Verse 11, and it says, King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. So there's all this loot, all this booty, all this war valuables that he had either conquered or that people had brought to him as tribute, right? And David didn't take credit for any of the victories. Nowhere do you see David saying, it's my strong arm that gave me these victories. It's also interesting, it doesn't say he hoarded all the treasures that God enabled him to win. It says he dedicated those to the Lord. He gave both the glory to God and he gave the gold to God, which is interesting. Good lesson for us. You know, have you ever noticed when you're in the middle of the battle, it, prayer comes pretty easy, right? You're, you're dying. You're going to pray, right? You know there's no option. It's harder to remember to give God the credit after the victory's over. It's terribly easy to go, yeah, wasn't that bad? I'm large and in charge. I took care of that. As Pastor Brian said this morning, and whose air were you breathing when you were in that battle? You were borrowing God's air, just saying. So our dependency should never be forgotten. If it's tough to give God the credit and praise him for the victory, for many Americans, it's even harder to give him the gold. All the valuables that God's put in your life, all the resources, all the blessings, all the benefits, we think as fallen people, that those are ours. In fact, everything is God's. We are just stewards, we're just managers. So David has to manage the battles, but David also has to manage the victories. And I would argue that it's much harder to handle success and remain humble than it is to remain humble in adversity. Sometimes I think we say, Lord, how come it, how come it keeps getting harder? How come there's so much adversity? How come my life is always a struggle? Maybe the Lord can't trust you with too much success because he knows what'll happen to your relationship with him. Maybe you'll say, I, I got this. I don't need you, Lord. 
The Lord says, well, the whole point of saving you is to have a relationship with you. And if I bless you and you walk away from me, that's a net loss. I want you close to me, right? I want a relationship with you. And if the only way to keep you close to me is to keep enough battles in your life so you'll be dependent, then maybe you need some battles. I know you didn't want to hear that. You're looking at me like, really? Can, can we talk about something else? I'm preaching to Brad number one here, so you're just kind of in on the conversation that the Lord has had with me. Whether you're in the thick of the battle right now or whether your life is peaceful right now, always trust him, always obey him, and always praise him. So that's chapter eight. That's David's conquest. Now we want to turn over to chapter nine and see a phenomenal contrast in the life of David and look at David's compassion. Chapter 9 is a beautiful picture of God's love for fallen humanity. David's kindness toward Mephibosheth is exactly what God did for us. In this chapter, we'll see that David is really a type of Christ. It's an illustration of God's love for undeserving people who are crippled by sin. This chapter uh, is probably the greatest illustration of grace in the entire Old Testament. So it's a remarkable document of grace from a monarch to a really undeserving servant that pictures God's uh, grace toward us. This chapter, chapter 9, probably took place about 15 to 20 years after David was crowned king. He reigned 40 years from 1011 to 971, and this probably took place 15 to 20 years into that reign, probably around 995 to 990 B.C., so David's probably somewhere between 45 and 50 years old at this point in time. Jonathan and Saul have been killed at the Battle of Gilboa in 1011, probably 15 to 20 years before. And in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Our principle here is very simple. Be a promise keeper. Be a promise keeper. In chapter 7, remember we talked about last week, David wants to build a, a temple for God, a house for God, and so David is asking, what can I do for God? In chapter 9, David is asking, what can I do for others? In either case, David is behaving as a servant. It's a good question for us to ask as well. David's desire is to show kindness, and we say, well, that's pretty laudable. Even more remarkable is it's to who? anyone in Saul's family. Well, that's kind of interesting because Saul had spent 10 years trying to kill David. So Saul's been gone for 15, 18 years, 15 to 20 years. Now David wants to show kindness to anyone in Saul's family, even though Saul had spent 10 years trying to kill him. Common practice in that era, anytime a new king took over the throne, the very first thing they did was kill all the family of the prior dynasty. Make sure there's no competition. You see this in nature. It's a little hard to watch, but you've probably seen enough nature videos. When there is a new lion who takes over a pride, a new male lion, the first thing they do is kill all the cubs of the prior male lion. It's nature of the beast. I don't like it, it's hard to watch. That's precisely how kings operate for generations. You don't want any competition. You don't want anybody from the prior dynasty challenging your rule. Just execute them. David is interesting because he rejects revenge. If anybody had a right to be revengeful, it would be him. This guy tried to kill me. This is not, you know, theoretical. This actually happened. And David re rejects revenge and instead chooses to express grace and chooses to love based on a promise he had made over 20 years before. He says, I want to show kindness. The translation of that is loving kindness. And this is one of the most common words in the Old Testament is chesed. C-H-E-S-E-D. Chesed. You kind of cough a little bit. Chesed. It means loyal love. Loyal love. Unfailing love. And the word chesed is connected to the word chasida. C-H-A-S-I-D-A-H. Chasida. In the Hebrew, chasida means stork. Believe it or not, the stork is a superb parent. One of the finest parents in the animal kingdom. 
The stork takes great pains to locate its nests in the safest areas it can find. The stork is exceptionally and unconditionally devoted to its young. It's really, really remarkable. Maybe that's where we got the, the notion that storks bring babies right, to families because they were such good parents. If you're gonna trust somebody with a baby before you get it, maybe the stork. Have you seen Walt Disney's Dumbo? The movie Dumbo, yeah, there's a stork that brings the baby in with that, that drill. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's a connection or not, but I was fascinated that the word chesed was connected to chastidal, which means stork, which are remarkable, faithful, loving parents. And this word, chesed, or loving kindness, is used over 250 times in the Old Testament. It's one of the most common descriptors of God. God is loving kind. He shows loving kindness. God's love is loyal. God's love is faithful. God makes promises and keeps promises. It's almost akin to the New, New Testament word agape, which describes the love of God as unconditional and undeserving and never-ending. This is kind of an Old Testament equivalent of it, if you will. It's interesting, you'll notice that David did not react. He didn't wait for somebody from the house of Saul to come to him and say, by the way, can you show me some loving kindness here, right? He went looking to show love. David's love is not passively waiting, and God's love did not passively wait for us to seek him, right? You are here, and I am here only because God took the initiative to find us. God's love is very active in pursuing us. As a matter of fact, Romans 5.8, we read that God demonstrates his own love toward us. When did he seek us? In that while we were yet sinners, in rebellion, at warfare, in cosmic treason against him, Christ died for us. So it's also interesting, David not only took the initiative, it says David wasn't looking for nice people. What's, what's the very first phrase? Is there, in chapter 9, verse 1, is there yet anyone, anyone of the lineage of Saul that I can show kindness to? Anyone related to Saul was eligible. And David's motive for doing this was very simple. He had made a promise to his best friend, Jonathan, probably 20 years before. They had made a covenant, a solemn vow, a promise before God of loyal love and protection for each other's descendants if something happened. And David had sworn that he would not cut off, that means kill Jonathan's descendants when he became king because both he and Jonathan knew that was gonna happen. David had made Jonathan a promise to love and care for his descendants and David was a promise keeper. You and I are also called to be promise keepers. The original promise keeper is Almighty God himself. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Numbers 23, 19. You can count on this God. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Everything you have in your lap in Scripture is predicated on the promise-keeping of Almighty God. And He is a God who says what He means, means what He says, and does everything He says. So in the battles of life, when human... I'm getting wound up here. Sorry about that. And I'm not sorry about it. That's just life. You can count on your God because he always keeps his word. Now, I may not keep it in the time frame you have in mind. That's not the point. His time frame is perfect. His word is eternal, and he will always do what he says he's going to do. And he calls us to always do what we are supposed to do as well. Somebody look up Numbers 30, verse 2. I'm going to ask you to read it. I've got it, and I should have put it down for you. Numbers 30, verse 2. When you have it, raise your hand, and I'll call on you. Stand up and read it out really loud. The last phrase, he shall do, she shall do according to all that proceeds out of your mouth. In our country today, words are cheap. People make promises, campaign promises, you know, warranty promises for this product you buy. God says, what you promise, you are obligated to fulfill. Verse 2. 
Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant, which is another way of saying at your service, right? The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Here's the principle. We who have experienced God's grace should share it with others. We who have experienced God's grace should share it with others. And if you're breathing his air today, you have experienced his grace. If you still have a heartbeat, which I trust you have, some kind of a pulse, maybe slow, but it's still going, that's God's grace. So Ziba apparently was the on-site estate manager for Saul's farm, Saul's land. David's trying to find somebody from Saul's lineage they don't exactly volunteer, so David questions the head steward of Saul's estate. David has experienced the kindness of God, and now he wants to share that kindness with the family of his friend Jonathan. Good model for us. Jonathan's been dead for 15 to 20 years, but he still has a son, perhaps his only son, who is still alive. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son, and Mephibosheth is probably 20, 21, 22 years old, He's been a cripple from childhood. When he was five years old at the Battle of Gilboa in 1011, his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul are killed on the same day on the mountainsides of Mount Gilboa by the Philistines. Now, he is an heir to the throne. He's number three in line. You know, the king of England, they go with the oldest children. Well, Jonathan was Saul's oldest son, and Mephibosheth was Jonathan's oldest son. So he's next in line for the throne because grandpa's dead and dad's dead. So he's it. It also means his life's in imminent danger because he's the next one from the Philistines. It says in 2 Samuel 4, 4, his nurse grabbed him up. He was five years old and ran out the door to save his life, and she dropped him. Likely that he broke both his ankles. No surgery. They just let him fuse. I don't know what kind of shape they fused into at that point in time, but he became crippled in both his feet. Very likely that walking was extremely slow and very difficult, even if they had some sort of rudimentary crutches. He also probably lived with chronic pain as well as a result of this accident. And Ziba, the servant of Saul, mentions to David that Mephibosheth is crippled in both feet. Interesting. Almost sounds like he's telling David, you know, this dude is just handicapped. He's disabled, man. He's someone who's just going to be a burden to you. He's someone who's going to be a liability. It's not somebody who's going to add anything to your life. He's just going to cost you money and time, etc. Ziba may also have been telling David, um, he's crippled. He's not a warrior. He's no threat to your throne. He's not going to lead a rebellion against you. He can't walk. Number of potential meetings here. It's interesting, the parallels between Mephibosheth and us are really remarkable. They're not very flattering, but they are true. Like Mephibosheth, we have fallen, have we not? And our fall into sin has permanently crippled us. And it causes us pain every day. Our sin nature prevents us from coming to God, from seeking after God. Our sin has made us helpless and hopeless. And that's exactly where Mephibosheth was. Verse 4. So the king said to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. David didn't wait for someone to seek him out and ask for help. He sought him out. He found Mephibosheth. Interesting. Jesus said what? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. None of us would be in this room today except Jesus Christ sought us first. And you say, well, David's looking for Mephibosheth. Exactly where is this son of Jonathan, this son of the king, living? He's hiding out in the boondocks. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's as far from Jerusalem as you can get and still stay in the land. Rob's going to show you a, a map, if you will, of Gilead and Lodabar. Lodabar is this real small, obscure village. It's 
north of Jerusalem. It's on the east side of the Jordan River, right? Probably near the nation of Ammon. It's located in the region of Gilead. That's always on the east side of the Jordan. It's about 10 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, okay? And significant number of miles north of Jerusalem. And Lodabar means no pasture. Now, if you're in agriculture, and you're a, a, a pastoralist, which means you, you, know, you raise sheep and goats and things, and the name of your village is No Pasture. That's probably not a good sign, right? That your village is rich, right? Mephibosheth is trying to stay low profile. He's trying to stay inconspicuous. He's in hiding from King David and has been for a couple of decades. He's hoping to stay out of sight, out of mind. He's the descendant of Saul. And his assumption is, is that David would want me dead. I need to hide out and stay low profile. He's so poor that he doesn't even own his own home. It says he's living in the house of Machir. We find out later that this man, Machir, is a man of great wealth and a very strong supporter of King David. So this guy is depending, Mephibosheth, on the kindness of others for a house to live in. This is us, is it not? Before Christ, how many of you ran to God when you were in sin? We were hiding from God because we loved our sin. We were hiding in a place of no pasture, in a place of poverty, in a place of insecurity. Satan promises us much, but he's the father of lies. And David pursued Mephibosheth, Jesus Christ pursued us, came after us, went to the place where we were living of poverty and insecurity and pain and no pasture, and he rescued us. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, prostrated himself, and David said... Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. Now the name Mephibosheth is not inspiring. It literally means a shameful thing or mouth of shame. His uncle was Ishbosheth, which means man of shame. So I'm not sure who named these children, but that would be not a name you would want to live up to. Mephibosheth is absolutely terrified. He believes when the servants of David knock on the door and bring him to Jerusalem that he's being brought to his execution. He believes that David is angry with him. He believes that David is his enemy. How many of you before you came to Christ had a view of God that was different than the truth? How many of us believe that God was... You know, not a good God. God was a mean God. God was a law-keeping God. God didn't want your joy. God didn't want your fun. God was just, do it my way or the highway, and I'm going to make your life miserable. Satan lies about the character of God all the time, misrepresents God all the time. And Mephibosheth, like us, had believed falsehoods about the nature of the king. In reality, David loved Jonathan and loved Mephibosheth and wanted to do good for him. And that's exactly like Jesus Christ. Just like Mephibosheth, our sin is shameful. Our sin keeps us living in fear. Our guilt keeps us away from God. And like Mephibosheth, all we can do when he face our king is to kneel before him, beg for mercy and say, I'm your servant. What did Pastor Brian talk about this morning? The individual who went to the temple whose prayer was heard is the one who face down, beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God always responds to repentance. Verse 7. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. The very first words out of David's mouth were what? Reassurance, comfort, hope, an extension of peace and loving kindness. In the Bible, many, many, many times when a human being encounters a divine being, a heavenly being, whether it's an angel or 
Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, the angel of the Lord is another name for that. The very first words that are said to a human being are, do not fear. Because when we encounter divinity, when we encounter holiness, when we encounter heaven, we are extremely convicted of our sin and our wickedness and our brokenness and we fall on our face throughout scripture that you see that over and over again. So David is modeling God when he says, do not fear. Interesting that God's command, do not fear, do not be afraid is seen over, well over a hundred times throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible. So the reason Mephibosheth doesn't have to be afraid is because of King David's relationship with his father, Jonathan. David doesn't know Mephibosheth, but he knew and loved his father, Jonathan. So David promises to Mephibosheth that he's going to restore Grandpa Saul's lands to him. It's interesting, I wonder who took the lands away from Mephibosheth, how he lost them. Well, remember, Saul and Jonathan had been killed when Mephibosheth is five. Not a lot he can do about Grandpa's estate when he's five years old. As a king, he must have had quite a large estate, but David wanted not only to restore the lands, he wanted to honor Mephibosheth, and he said, you can be a regular guest at my table in the palace. In today's equivalent, that's like receiving a government pension for life. I mean, he went from poverty to plenty. He went from obscurity to honor. I mean, he was hiding out of Lodabar, and now he's a guest of the king on a regular basis and has intimacy with the king. He can eat at the king's table. He's gone from hiding to, to close fellowship with the king. And that's like us, right? Has God shown us grace? Has God done far more than you ever dreamed that he would and could when you first came to him? Amen. Beyond our comprehension. Do you think that what he has planned for your future is even beyond what you could have imagined today? Of course, because he is a good God. Just like David restored to Mephibosheth what had been stolen from him, God restores to us what Satan stole from us. He restores our relationship and he's given us access. Jesus Christ has given us access to the very throne of heaven. And we had a little sermon on that this morning in prayer. You have instant access to Almighty God beyond our comprehension. But true because God always keeps his word, verse 8. Again, he prostrated himself and says, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? And by the way, in that era, dogs were not pets. You didn't spend money scaling your dog's teeth or taking them to the vet <laughs> or getting them poofed and all this other stuff, right? They were feral. They were vermin. They ate calories, and calories are hard to come by in that era. A dead dog was both detestable and worse, useless. Just a dead dog just, you know, in the way. So Mephibosheth describes himself in the sense that he did not merit any of David's kindness. He could never repay it. And we deserve nothing from God like Mephibosheth, and yet he has given us everything. Verse 9. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You, Ziba, and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. And there's this little sidebar, the last phrase, which is interesting. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Wow. That's remarkable when you think about it. So David is exercising authority as king. He says, I don't know who's currently, he might have found out, who's currently got Saul's estate, but I'm restoring that estate to the family lineage. Saul's grandson's going to own that estate. I don't know whether Ziba had taken it over at Saul's death. kind of sounds that way. We know that Mephibosheth wasn't even living on Saul's estate. He was living someplace else. So God not, or David not only gave Mephibosheth the land, he said, Ziba, you're going to cultivate it. You're going to farm it, and you're going to bring in the produce to provide for Mephibosheth's household and, and pay their way because Mephibosheth is with me in the kingdom and the palace. So it says Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. In that era, that was a fair amount of wealth. He must have had enough hands to farm the land at that point. 
Obviously, he was a man of some influence to have 20 servants. That means Ziba was pretty, uh, pretty influential and fairly wealthy. It probably demonstrates that Saul's estate was pretty substantial. It also, and I'm reading into this, so this is just Brad's opinion, it sounds like Ziba might have had more than one wife. If you have 15 sons, the likelihood is you're going to have 15 daughters. Children are born roughly one-to-one, -one, fortunately, pretty close to that, right? If you have 30 children, sons and daughters, probably more than one mom. Would you think? He's a pretty wealthy guy, is what I'm saying. And we knew that Zeba's a little unreliable character because later on he proved to be a liar because he, he badmouths Mephibosheth and deceives David into believing that Mephibosheth had sided with his son Absalom when Absalom rebelled against him. So we know Zeba's got character problems. But the parallels here are interesting. Like David provided for Mephibosheth, God has provided for all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's not only forgiven us, but he's restored to us all that sin took away. One of my favorite passages in scripture, I've got a lot of them. There's a passage in Joel that says, God will restore to us the years the locust has eaten. Locusts, when they would come on the land, would devour everything. They just lay it waste. I didn't come to Christ till I was 25. I had wasted a good 10 years of my life. Right? I don't know when you came to Christ, but most of us have wasted some years in sin and in rebellion and not in fellowship with the king. And Joel says, the book of Joel says, I, God, will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, which means I can make your life going forward so spiritually productive, it will be as if you never wasted those years. And that should give us phenomenal comfort. Even now, I may not waste years, but I sure waste moments. God can restore those. God does restore those. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. By the way, that's a pretty good prayer to your king. Right there. That's a pretty good prayer. When the lord commands you something, say, Lord, according to all that you have spoken, my king, I'll do so Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. There's a phrase here I want you to underline. And it says that the last half, the last phrase of verse 11 as one of the king's own sons. So Mephibosheth is literally adopted by David and treated as one of his own sons. It's intriguing. In four verses, it repeats the same phrase over and over and again. It says, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. Four times he repeats that. One of the things we learn about scripture, when scripture repeats something, that's for emphasis. It's like exclamation points. It says, pay attention. When you have something repeated four times in four verses, that is a significant clue that something significant is going on, right? You know, it highlights the fact that Mephibosheth is no longer living up to security. He's no longer living in fear. This grandson of Saul, who tried to kill David, is now living openly in Jerusalem in the king's palace. He's no longer in poverty. He's no longer estranged from King David. He's eating with King David at the table. By the way, in that era, when you shared a meal with someone, you came under the protection of the host who would lay down their life on your behalf. That's what Jesus did for us, didn't he? Laid down his life on our behalf and we have been adopted into his family and he has sworn protection and provision for us. Mephibosheth, who was an enemy, is now family. However, the last phrase says what? He was lame in both his feet. Even though his life was vastly better, the consequences of his fall were still there. They would last his lifetime. I promise you Mephibosheth is walking. When you get to heaven, you will walk. You will run. You will dance. But on earth, many of us 
have scar tissue from past decisions. It's forgiven. It's restored. God's grace covers that. But most of us will carry scar tissue. All of us will carry scar tissue until we get home. And then the memory of sin will be no more. So David's grace to Mephibosheth is a picture of God's grace to us. Commentator David Guzik, he's made a list of these comparisons. Listen to this. We are sinners who were poor, weak, lame, fearful, and in hiding before our king came for us. We were separated from our king because of our wicked ancestors and our own deliberate actions. We hid from our king because we didn't know him and we didn't know his love for us. Our king sought us out before we sought him. Our king extended kindness to us for the sake of another. Our king's kindness is based on covenant promises. We must receive our king's kindness in humility. Our king returns to us what was lost when we hid from him. The king returns more to us than we lost. We have the, provision, the privilege of provision at the king's table. We are adopted into the king's family and have access and fellowship with the king. And not only are we like Mephibosheth, we're also called to be like David. We should seek out our enemies and seek to bless them in the name of Jesus Christ. We should look for the poor, the weak, the obscure, the hurting, and help them in love. We should bless others, especially when they don't deserve it, because we didn't deserve it either. We should always show the kindness of God to others. You read this chapter, and it's a remarkable portrait of the grace of God. I would encourage you to take it this week and read it again, study it. The number of ways that we have experienced grace are countless, and most of them we just take for granted. It's a good idea to go back and recall and remember so that we can give God praise for his faithfulness. So we're going to summarize, and we'll have a couple minutes for Q&A, and then Tom will come up and lead us in our prayer and praises. Here's our summary points. Number one. God is our strength in the battles of life. So trust him before the battle, obey him in the battle, and praise him after the battle. Number two, be a promise keeper. What you say, do. You know what I was going to put here first? Probably not too nice. Walk your talk or don't talk. I was going to say walk your talk or shut up, but I thought that would be a little... <laughs> That's what Brad needs to hear, all right? Preaching to me, right? Be a promise keeper. And lastly, we who have experienced God's grace should share it with others. Okay, now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.